I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On March 1st, President Donald Trump announced new tariffs on steel and aluminum, citing national security concerns. This week on We the People, we look at the legal and constitutional dimensions of those tariffs. Where does the president have the power to impose the tariffs? What is Congress's role? Can the president withdraw from international treaties? And more broadly, does the president have the power to declare a trade war? Joining us to discuss these crucial legal questions are two of America's leading scholars of international trade law. Timothy Meyer is professor of law at Vanderbilt Law School and a former legal advisor for the State Department under President Obama. And my colleague Steve Charnovich is associate professor of law at George Washington University Law School and a member of both the Council on Foreign Relations and the American Law Institute. Timothy, Steve, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. Thank you. Let us begin with the history. There, uh, the question of who has the power to impose tariffs and whether to fund the national debt through tariffs or excise taxes was one of the central debates of the republic, dating back to debates between Hamilton and Jefferson. Tim, can, Timothy, can you uh, begin by giving us a sense of the history of the tariff and their role in uh, American uh, constitutional debate? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so, you know, so the tariff was one of the uh, central issues that led to the uh, Constitutional Convention that gave us um, the existing Constitution. Under the Articles of Confederation, um, you could not uh, the the Confederation Congress could not impose a nationwide tariff without the unanimous unanimous consent of the states. Um, and uh, during the uh, Articles of Confederation period, um, the states balked at that. In particular, Rhode Island and and later New York. Um, balked at the uh, establishment of a of a nationwide tariff. Now you have to remember, at the time um, there were not uh, there there was not an income tax, so there wasn't um, a basis for the national government to uh, raise revenue uh, in any sort of really meaningful way um, apart from the tariff. The tariff was really the central means by which the national government was going to was going to raise revenue. Um, and so, you know, to a very large extent, um, the control over uh, national control over tariff policy. Um, was one of the central reasons that the Constitutional Convention um, was convened. Um, and, and Hamilton actually uh, credited um, the authority over, over imposts as being um, one of the major uh, reasons that the convention was convened. And um, authority over uh, tariffs is, in Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, uh, assigned to Congress. So um, all authority over uh, uh, tariffs as a constitutional matter is given by Article One, Section 8 um, to Congress, as is authority over uh, foreign commerce. Um, and uh, the origination clause also gives um, Congress, the, um, and in particular the House of Representatives, um, the responsibility for uh, originating um, spending bills. So the tariff was intimately connected at the nation's founding to the, to the idea that this is where the federal government was going to uh, have the authority to uh, to raise revenue, which was going to be central to uh, to redistribution, and you know throughout the long 19th century, um, you know which which runs into the 20th century, the way in which um, the tariff was used was primarily as a tool of uh, domestic economic policy. 
Um, so the tariff was used under Henry Clay's um, system. The tariff was basically used to raise revenue that was going to be used to uh, redistribute um, within the country. It was going to be used to invest in infrastructure improvements um, throughout, uh, throughout the West. Um, later in the 19th century, um, the tariff was very much connected to um, protectionism in a way that was not a pejorative. Um, the idea was that the tariff was going to be used um, to protect the growing uh, American industries, to protect infant industries. Um, and in fact, in the late 19th century, one of the central uh, justifications for the tariff was, was protectionism, that um, there was a sense that even maybe some revenue generating tariffs could be cut back, but that protectionist tariffs um, could really, um, uh, could really uh, perform a useful uh, function in shielding uh, American industries that were getting going during the Industrial Revolution from, um, from foreign competition. Um, this started to change in the, uh, in the 20th century. Um, and uh, I should say, during, during this sort of long 19th century, Congress was very much involved in uh, setting specific tariff rates. So you had members of Congress that were advocating for specific tariff rates on products that were important to um, their districts, important to their states. Um, and you also had uh, the House of Representatives being very wary of um, the use of the treaty power to set tariffs. Um, the, the House did not want, you know, as you uh, both know, of course, um, the treaty power allows uh, the president with the advice and the consent of the Senate to enter into a treaty um, that would uh, have the force of federal law without the participation of the House of Representatives. And so during the 19th century, the House was very protective of its role in setting tariffs and in, uh, and in uh, raising revenue um, and wanted to make sure that uh, the treaty power and international trade agreements in particular were not going to be used to circumvent the House's, uh, the House's role. Um, things start to change with the, uh, the uh, 16th Amendment and the passage of the income tax um, because the passage of the income tax, of course, means that the tariff no longer has to be the primary vehicle for raising federal revenue. Um, and uh, you then get a second event, which is the Great Depression. Um, the Great Depression um, uh, was thought to have been uh, fed by what are called the Smoot-Hawley tariffs of 1930. Um, this was a tariff regime that, um, that basically the U.S. threw up um, pretty significant tariffs to international trade. It led to uh, other countries imposing reciprocal um, tariffs. And the, uh, the thought was that, the thought at the time was that this led to a downward spiral of protectionism that ultimately um, contributed to and exacerbated um, the Great Depression, which of course was a, a contributing factor to World War II. Um, so as a consequence, in 1934, um, Congress basically got out of the business of um, directly legislating tariffs across the economy. Um, and in 1934, um, the uh, Congress passed a statute that gave the president the authority to enter into reciprocal trade agreements that would reduce tariffs. And those agreements didn't have to be uh, approved by Congress. So the president had ex ante uh, authority delegated from Congress to enter into uh, agreements and then to uh, set tariff rates based on those uh, agreements that the president entered into. Um, in the post-war era, so after the Second World War, um, President Truman used that authority to enter into the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the GATT. Um, what's fascinating is that Congress early on was, was very of sort of of two minds about the GATT um, and actually refused to approve um, the GATT or authorize the International Trade Organization 
which would have been in a body very similar to today's World Trade Organization that would have overseen the implementation, um, the implementation of the GATT. Um, Congress, although it continued to reauthorize the president's authority to negotiate these tariffs, um, Congress uh, resisted in the early years through the Eisenhower administration actually approving um, of the existence of the GATT, and it would insert language into these st federal statutes delegating authority of the president, making clear that it neither approved nor disapproved of the existence, um, the existence of the GATT. Um, nevertheless, throughout the, the 50s, um, President uh, Truman, President Eisenhower, uh, and then President Kennedy um, continued to negotiate uh, these uh, tariff agreements, um, these reciprocal trade agreement authority, the authority to negotiate these agreements was being deployed in a multilateral context now in, within the GATT. Um, but by 1962, um, the uh, Kennedy administration really thought it needed um, considerably more expansive authority. Congress had placed some limits on how much the president could reduce tariffs. And so in 1962, um, Europe was, um, was emerging as uh, the European communities were negotiating increasingly as a, um, as a single block. Um, and President Kennedy in the Trade Expansion Act of 1962 received considerably greater authority to, uh, to negotiate uh, tariff reductions. Um, the 62 Act also did a number of other things that are uh, important to what's happening today. Um, most significant, given where we are on March 14th, the 1962 uh, Trade Expansion Act contains um, Section 232, which is the basis for uh, President Trump's um, national security uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum. Um, the 62 Act was followed by the 74 Act. Uh, in 1974, President Nixon um, wanted authority to do another round of trade negotiations. Um, and the 1974 Act is generally uh, credited with establishing the existing framework for negotiating trade agreements. And the, the major thing the 74 Act did was it established uh, fast-track authority. Um, fast-track authority is a procedure whereby um, provided that uh, the administration adheres to negotiating objectives established by um, the authorizing legislation, Congress agrees to give an up or down vote to implementing legislation that would implement any trade agreements. Now, the reason this was necessary was because trade agreements between um, 1934, when the, this initial authority was given to President Roosevelt, and 1974, trade agreements had started to involve what are called non-tariff barriers. Um, so they had started to involve regulations that were not simply about um, general tariff rates. Um, and Congress wanted to approve those, uh, those agreements. So the president continued to have authority to, to uh, enter into agreements on tariffs, had authority to uh, reduce um, tariffs in accordance with those agreements, but he didn't have authority to uh, enter into non-tariff barrier agreement, agreements without um, congressional consent. Um, what the Fast Track did was Fast Track basically um, circumscribed congressional review of those agreements um, so that Congress agreed that it would not legislate on non-tariff barriers um, in the way that it legislates on any sort of domestic economic uh, matter. Instead, what it would do uh, is it would give this just, just sort of a straight up or down vote um, to any agreement that met Congress's negotiating objectives. Um, if you think about what's happening during this period, basically what's going on is that um, you are seeing, first of all, broad delegations to the executive branch that are consistent with the sort of general rise of the administrative state that starts with the Roosevelt administration. 
But you're also seeing a broad shift in the way we think about um, trade policy. Um, if in the, in the 19th century, we primarily thought of trade policy as being about domestic economic policy, raising revenue and redistributing within the country. In the 20th century and in the post-war era, this is what it's really doing is it's, it's performing a foreign policy objective. The uh, successive, um, mostly Democratic administrations, although later Republican administrations as well, are uh, using free trade agreements to uh, try to win the Cold War. And you see this repeatedly invoked by the Truman administration, the Eisenhower administration, the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, the idea that um, liberalizing trade is important to rebuild Europe after the war and as a bulwark against, um, as against communism. Um, and later, as you move into the 80s and 90s, um, that kind of rationale starts to break down because we've won the Cold War. Um, so the, the Reagan administration in, uh, in the late 80s um, negotiates, uh, begins the negotiations that ultimately lead during the Clinton administration to the uh, World Trade Organization. Um, being created uh, on January 1, 1995. And since then, multilateral trade negotiations have by and large, um, by and large not been successful. And what we've seen is a shift towards uh, regional agreements um, like the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, um, and uh, more recently, um, what would have been the Trans-Pacific Partnership and what will apparently be what is known as the CPTPP, which includes uh, 11 other uh, countries, um, but w proceeding without the United States. Thank you so much for that comprehensive, fascinating, extremely useful uh, survey of the of the history of trade and tariff policy. Steve, uh, eager for your thoughts, amendments, and supplements. Um, I'll, I'll just jump off by saying that my colleague Lana Ulrich has a great piece in Constitution Daily on Donald Trump and the history of tariffs and trade, and she notes that there's a, a party dimension to the battle dating back to Hamilton, who advocated moderate protective tariffs to protect manufacturers to Jefferson, who preferred free trade to allow agricultural development. And uh, Lana says that every time a Democratic or Republican president has jumped into the tariff battle in the 19th century, including Cleveland and Taft, it's ended up splitting the party and guaranteeing the election of the opposition in the following election. So uh, uh, some sense of the, uh, the partisan dimensions of this battle would be wonderful, too. Well, thank you. You know, the the, the trade history of the United States is quite quite rich. The the new book by uh, Douglas Irwin is the one I would recommend for anyone who wants to to read about the the, uh, the sections of the countries and the industries and the parties. Uh, and uh, absolutely would be the the the, uh, the definitive uh, place now to look for that for that history. Let me let me just add some points to Tim's. Uh, impressive uh, disquisition. Um, first, uh, the, the the idea that about protection, it, really there was a pejorative uh, context to it. Uh, the, the, the idea of using tariffs to protect particular industries was always objected to by some people, particularly in the in the South in the early years of the country. And indeed, I noticed on the National Constitutional Center website a uh, reminder of the anniversary of the uh, Confederate Constitution of the United States, which had a provision uh, providing the, the authority to, uh, for its uh, legislature to enact duties and, and uh, tariffs, but said that they could not be laid to promote or foster any branch of industry. So one of the things that the Confederate Constitution did actually is forbade 
protect a tariff. So the, the issue has always been sort of controversial. I, I would also say that the Congress really has never gotten out of the business of legislating specific tariffs. There are two really, two streams of, of, of activity to look at here. One is that the Congress, starting in 1789, in the second act the Congress passed, began to legislate on tariffs. And the Congress continues to do that today. Uh, the miscellaneous tariff bill that the House passed earlier this year, and hopefully the Senate will also take that up, is a specific action by the Congress to lower particular tariffs. So the, the Congress has always been doing that. But the other thing the Congress has been doing, and this is important on the constitutional authority dimension, is that they have delegated power to the president. And, con and congressional delegations of trade power to the president began in 1794. And there were many instances of this in the, in the 19th century. And that continues uh, uh, today, too. Uh, it, it's also interesting to note that uh, national security has always been part of this uh, trade debate. Uh, the earliest delegations of authority to the president were about national security and foreign policy. The trade embargoes that were, that were authorized, the retaliation that was authorized against Great Britain or France in the early uh, part of, the, uh, of our constitutional history. So there are definitely two streams of, of, of action there, legislation by the Congress on trade and delegations to the president uh, to carry out uh, particular actions. In my view, the the Section uh, 232 program now being used by uh, President Trump on, on steel and, and, and uh, aluminum uh, is being used in a manner that no previous president has ever done. Uh, and this authority goes back actually to 1954, but before even the, the 1962 act that Tim uh, mentioned. And I see President Trump is using that power to wage trade wars, to issue new threats every day. And in my view, it, it opens up the question of whether this broad delegation to the president in Section 232 violates constitutional limits. The problem with that argument, though, is that unfortunately, in 1976, the Supreme Court in the FEA versus uh, Algonquin case ruled that Section 232 was constitutional. Uh, but it was not a well-reasoned decision. Thank you very much indeed for that fascinating uh, additional history and for introducing our central topic for the podcast, namely, is President Trump's use of executive orders and also of Section 232 to impose aluminum and steel tariffs arguably unconstitutional? Uh, Tim, your thoughts on that question? And I'll add that you clerked for now Justice Neil Gorsuch, who has question broad delegations of authority by Congress to the president. Um, so uh, give us a sense of what potential legal challenges to President Trump's tariffs might be and how you think they might fare before the courts. So, Jeff, thanks for that question. I, I think uh, Steve's exactly right with respect to um, the uh, the main challenge that I think uh, is out there and has some potential with the current court would be a non-delegation challenge. Um, if you read Section 232, uh, it is a very broad uh, delegation that does not really include um, any meaningful limits on the president's ability to set uh, tariffs. Basically, what has to happen is uh, the Secretary of Commerce issues a finding that um, the import uh, of some products 
constitutes a threat to the national security. The president then has to uh, decide whether he concurs in that judgment um, and then has um, incredibly broad authority to craft the uh, uh, remedy. Um, it can include quotas. It can include tariffs. In the past, um, it's included uh, licensing fees. Um, in the uh, Algonquin case, um, the 1976 case, um, the D.C. Circuit had actually initially held um, that uh, there was a delegation problem um, and that, the, uh, that there was a, a delegation problem that, need, that required them to read the statute narrowly um, to uh, only allow the president to impose quotas. Um, and the Supreme Court uh, rejected that interpretation and instead held that basically the president is free. There's no non-delegation problem, and the president is free to uh, craft an appropriate remedy that would result in the languages um, in a, basically an adjustment of the, uh, of the imports. Now, um, as you noted, um, Justice Gorsuch, when he was on the uh, Tenth Circuit, has questioned um, whether or not um, it is – he's essentially questioned whether or not it's time for the courts to get back into the business of policing the outer limits of the non-delegation doctrine. Um, and the court just granted uh, cert um, just, I think, last month in a case called Gundy, um, Gundy v. United States, which is actually a criminal case that involves um, the uh, Sex Offenders uh, Registration Notification Act. Um, but the basic uh, question um, raised by that case is whether or not a delegation to the attorney general um, to prescribe regulations related to, to notification um, exceeds whether where there is essentially no standard in the statute, whether or not it uh, exceeds the constitutional limits on Congress's ability to delegate um, to delegate authority. That case is, I think, going to be set for argument in the fall. Um, and I think the outcome of that case, you know, one of the interesting things is that there is no circuit split on this issue. Um, and yet the court went ahead and granted cert, which usually is a pretty good indication that the court has an idea um, of, of what direction it wants to go in. And I think if that case comes out the way it looks like it might come out, um, we start to see um, a renewed interest in the non-delegation doctrine by the court. This section 232 immediately becomes another area um, where where you really do start, I think, to see some people having an interest in, in the non-delegation doctrine. Um, the idea that the president can set uh, tariff rates um, at any level that he wants for any amount of time he wants um, simply by determining that it's in the interest of national security. Um, there's some language in the statute that directs the president and the secretary of commerce to look at a, a several factors um, to, in making that determination. But it's really an almost totally unbounded determination by the president. And I think, um, you know, if, if Gundy comes out the way it looks like it might come out, uh, these Section 232 tariffs start to look um, pretty vulnerable to a constitutional non-delegation challenge. Many thanks for that. Uh, uh, Steve, your further thoughts on the uh, arguments for and against a, a, a non-delegation non challenge to 232, and are there any other grounds under which uh, President Trump's tariffs could be challenged, including the origination clause? Well, I mean, the argument against it is is that, uh, one, the Supreme Court already looked at it and held in the unanimous decision that it was, it was constitutional. But uh, also that w the, the Congress has been delegating authority to the president since the beginning of the country, and it's, it's important that the Congress do so uh, in the trade area. But that said, I completely agree with Professor Meyer that there are, are good reasons to believe Section 232 exceeds constitutional bounds. As, as he said, there, there are no 
serious limiting principles in the president's authority. There's no maximum tariff set. Goods on the free list can be moved to the dutiable list. Uh, the idea of the concept of national security is totally open-ended. Uh, under the criteria, the Secretary of Commerce can make an affirmative finding on any product that has been displaced by imports. If he finds that those imports weaken our, the U.S. internal economy or economic welfare. So it's completely malleable uh, criteria. And the president's given authority to set tariffs on potentially all imports at whatever level he wants for as long as he wants on any nation that he wants. And this, it just, this, this, the, the writing of tariffs has been something that the Congress has, as I said before, has been doing since the beginning. And to delegate all this authority to the president, I think really goes too far. The, the other challenge to the, the actions on steel and metal would be that the uh, president has exceeded his authority under the act. The problem, though, is that the act uh, is written in a very broad way. And then I've heard uh, some uh, trade commentators this week say that uh, because the president has talked about this authority as being used to combat unfair trade practices or dumping or uh, that, that he's doing it for political reasons, to, for, for Pennsylvania or something like that, that uh, ulterior motives by the president might be a way to attack uh, the steel uh, or, or aluminum actions. But I think that the precedence for, for this law and in general for presidential decisions is that a court is not going to second guess uh, the president on a judgment that Congress has committed to the president. Uh, uh, the problem with this judgment that Congress has committed is that they, they've, they've given the president a great deal of authority without any intelligible principles. Uh, but uh, unless the law is unconstitutional, I don't think the court is going to try to... Uh, uh, second guess the president's judgment. Thanks very much for that uh, helpful discussion. Let's now turn to the president's uh, powers to withdraw from bilateral and multilateral trade agreements like NAFTA. Tim, you wrote a commentary in 2017 whose headline was Trump's threat to withdraw from NAFTA may hit a hurdle. The U.S. Constitution, you quoted Article 1, Section 8, and I'll just quote it in full so our listeners have it uh, right to hand. Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises and regulate commerce with foreign nations. And you said that trade agreements, unlike defense agreements, are clearly covered by the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, although in a subsequent commentary you said that if the case were framed as a debate over the president's foreign affairs powers, then the president might win. So tell us about the legal arguments for and against President Trump's ability to withdraw from NAFTA. Sure. So uh, I think it's important to recognize that there are two uh, aspects or, or two – these international trade agreements uh, have essentially two lives. Um, one is that they are international agreements that have force under international law um, as, as the law between the parties that have agreed to the agreements. And the second thing is that they have force as um, federal law. And their force as federal law is a function of uh, implementing legislation that, uh, that Congress passes. Um, so – the president, if the the uh, Supreme Court has given the president enormous leeway um, in the conduct of foreign affairs, uh, and so the question about whether the president could withdraw from NAFTA, the international agreement, NAFTA, 
Um, I think the Supreme Court would be likely to resolve that, if framed that way, would be likely to resolve um, the case in the president's favor. Um, the North American Free Trade Agreement includes what is a fairly standard withdrawal provision that allows um, a country to uh, exit the agreement after uh, a notification period of, uh, I think it's six months. Um, and um, so all that would have to happen as a matter of international laws, you'd simply have to have the president send a notification to Mexico and Canada. Um, and then uh, six months later, the, uh, the United States would be, uh, could be out of the agreement if the president uh, so, want, so wished. Um, I have a hard time imagining um, the uh, Supreme Court stepping in and saying that the president doesn't have the ability to send that notification um, given the way the NAFTA Implementation Act is is written. I do think, however, that because um, control over foreign commerce is clearly allocated under the Constitution to, uh, to the president, first of all, I think Congress could pass a law that directed the president not to withdraw. Um, and the, uh, they haven't done that, um, but I think that they, just as they can override the uh, Section 232 action, I mean, it's probably worth mentioning in the context of Section 232 that um, Congress has overridden a Section 232 action before. Um, President Carter imposed um, a, uh, a regime uh, that called for um, fees on the import of oil in 1980, and Congress over over a presidential veto actually overrode um, the president's uh, Section 232 uh, determination. There, uh, likewise, I I think Congress could pass a statute that directed um, the president not to withdraw from NAFTA. Congress could also just pass an implementing uh, statute that would, um, in effect, um, domesticate all of NAFTA. Um, so the NAFTA Implementation Act um, doesn't just directly enact the, uh, the international agreement into federal law, but there's no reason, um, there's no reason it couldn't. Um, now, I think once you uh, get into the statutory question about whether or not the president actually has authority under the statute um, to, uh, to get out from under NAFTA, I think it's, it's a more difficult question. And my view there is that, um, in fact, uh, only Congress can repeal the implementation statutes, the, the implementing acts for agreements like NAFTA or the Korean-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, CHORUS, which the president has also um, threatened to walk away from if it's not renegotiated uh, to his liking. Um, and, and my view on those statutes there is that, is that those are federal statutes, uh, and the president cannot, um, by taking a, uh, uh, an action such as withdrawing from an international agreement, cannot um, cause those, uh, those uh, domestic statutes to sunset. It's basically an extension of the Clinton v. New York case. This is the line item veto case. Um, the Supreme Court there held that um, basically Congress and the president cannot reconfigure authorities in such a way that the president, by taking a unilateral action, can repeal a statute. Um, and if the president, um, by exiting one of these international agreements like NAFTA, can repeal Congress's domestic implementing legislation, you've got a constitutional problem under Clinton v. New York. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Steve, your thoughts on President Trump's ability unilaterally to withdraw from NAFTA, the legal arguments for and against that, and also does he have the power to withdraw from the World Trade Organization? Yeah, well, I think he does. Uh, traditionally, we've 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 this has never been really completely decided by the Supreme Court, but we've always thought the president was the one that it spoke for the country in terms of of uh, participating in international agreements. He can't get into them without Senate or congressional approval. But the idea that he he, he is not able to get out 
uh, without their approvals, a, a different proposition. And I, I don't think the uh, Supreme Court would ever say that. It's, uh, treaties are not suicide pacts. If the president needs to leave, uh, he should leave. But uh, the United, he should take the United States out. The, um, so if the president were to say he withdraws from NAFTA, uh, it's, uh, there is authority in the NAFTA Implementation Act for the uh, tariffs to uh, uh, snap back to what they were uh, before. Uh, so I, uh, and, and there's some uh, disagreement as to exactly how those provisions are work or would work or what would happen in the first year. But there's, besides Section 232, I mean, there's ample authority, ample delegations in U.S. law for the president to, to take actions to, uh, against particular countries. So if he were to pull out a NAFTA and uh, Mexico and Canada were to respond by removing uh, free trade against the United States with the United States, the president could certainly respond to that. And I, and I think he could probably do it in any event. So uh, the, the World Trade Organization's uh, uh, a similar issue. The big problem, though, with the World Trade Organization today is that the administration is not only uh, talking about trade wars against other countries, it's also uh, has a trade war against the World Trade Organization. Uh, under this administration, the, 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 the United States has blocked uh, uh, reappointments of appellate body judges or new appointments of appellate body judges. And so when the, when the terms expire of the uh, appellate body members, the United States has blocked a replacement for those people. So the appellate body now has shrunk in size. As a result, uh, delays have uh, substantially increased. And the administration continues to block those uh, appointments, uh, we won't have a functioning appellate body. Already it's a close call because of the delays that have built up. And so I think the president, the one part of the WTO that's been working well, which is the independent international dispute settlement system. Uh, and that's a, a, a serious problem for the world trading system and for the United States economy. Uh, thank you for that. Um our final uh, question before the closing arguments uh, is this one. Uh, does the president broadly have the power to declare trade wars? Uh, president Trump recently has blocked the merger of uh, broadcast and Qualcomm, uh, citing national security, and has imposed a series of other uh, economic uh, protectionist uh, moves. Are those broadly within his legal powers, and can the president declare trade wars? Uh, Timothy. So uh, my colleague Ganesh Sitaraman and I have an article, a new article that uh, tr tries to think through these issues. And I think the answer is that um, as a statutory matter, Congress has delegated the president such expansive authority that uh, as, a, as a practical matter, uh, he does. But the uh, power to declare trade wars is very similar to, I think, the power to declare uh, actual wars, shooting wars, in that constitutionally, the framers thought that this was something that Congress should be involved in. Um, Congress is uh, representative of the entire nation, and it represents particular local constituencies that that um, the framers thought it was important to be represented in the, uh, in the, in the uh, political process. Um, and so although we've kind of moved into this uh, foreign affairs paradigm in the 20th century in which we, we tend to think that the president speaks for the nation um, as a whole, 
I think one of the things that the, the current administration is really calling into question is whether or not the president does, in fact, speak for um, the economic interests of the of the nation as a whole. Um, there is bipartisan support, um, both for some of the action that the current administration has taken against the World Trade Organization. So a lot of the, uh, the administration's actions, particularly with respect to the appellate body, actually predate the Trump administration. There are Obama administration policies. Um, and concern about uh, China, I think, also is is bipartisan. Um, having said that, I think the uh, the attitude, um, the, the very confrontational stance that this administration has taken, um, is uh, not necessarily something that uh, that is bipartisan um, in uh, in its support. And it'll be interesting to see whether Congress starts to try to reassert itself. I think, as in the uh, in the, the case of of uh, use of force and war powers, um, Congress is just not especially well positioned to, to exercise its constitutional prerogatives. Not because um, of any constitutional deficiency, but just because politically, Congress has, seems to have a hard time in an age of the imperial presidency. Uh, of actually um, exercising its its constitutional uh, its constitutional authorities, and I think that leaves us in a place where the president has, across so many different aspects of trade law, such broad delegations of authority that um, there really is, uh, I think, some um, some concern that he can initiate trade wars without the broad political support that the framers envisioned. Thank you for that, Steve. Same question to you: Does the president have the power to declare trade wars? Well, yes, in the sense that Congress has given the president that authority going back to, to 1794, in a sense. But uh, the question is whether right now I mean, the, the president is using certain authorities to to go far beyond anything that's been done before. I mean, in, in, until, until this year, uh, Section 232 had only been used for oil. Uh, now the, President Trump is saying, in effect, you know, he, he could he, use it for manufactured products, steel, aluminum, and basically any industry could file a petition with the Secretary of Commerce, and then we could get protection for automobiles or, or many other sectors. So I think it's it's a different level now of activity. Previous presidents have had the opportunity uh, in, outside of the oil area to impose uh, tariff increases in Section 232 cases, and they've never done it. Because I think they recognize if there's a commodity that, that we really need in the United States uh, for national security reasons, to limit importation of it uh, is counterproductive. So it hasn't been done before. Trump is taking it to a whole new level, and I, and I think a troubling one. You asked about the CFIUS uh, decision there. The review of foreign uh, investment in the United States and, and mergers is something that goes back to the Trade Act of, of 1988. So the authority has always been there, but it's being used now in a, a bit more aggressive way than it, it had been in, in the past. Uh, the congressional reaction to it, uh, from what I've seen, is to say, let's even strengthen uh, the president's hand so he can, he can do more of that. And I think it's a very troubling development, particularly since that CFIUS process is so uh, secretive and without really very good legal criteria, and it's not reviewable by courts. The, the final point about uh, the, the president's concern about trade wars is he's, he's saying that we're being treated unfairly by other countries. And to some extent, that may be true. But the, the proper response to that in a, in a legal order 
uh, would be to bring cases against them in the World Trade Organization court, uh, to negotiate new trade agreements, such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership, where uh, President Trump pulled the United States out, and to have direct, tough negotiations with China, which this administration also uh, hasn't done. So, uh, yes, China, you know, is, is doing some things well. They they have some industrial policies that are that are working for them. Uh, but I think the proper response for the United States is is not to uh, reward our least efficient industries with trade protection that will open us up to retaliation from the European Union against our most successful and efficient industries. Uh, it's not to do that, but rather to have appropriate and better competitiveness policies and, and economic growth policies in the United States. And that, unfortunately, this administration has not done very much of, uh, for example, infrastructure. Uh, and, and, and so in the absence of that, we're going to continue to be vulnerable to China and other countries that have a, a, a smarter uh, and more focused policies than we do. Many thanks for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this extremely educational and interesting discussion. These are the three-minute segments where I ask each of you to sum up the core of your thoughts, and the question is this one. Will and should courts block any of President Trump's protectionist policies as violations of the laws or the Constitution? Tim. Uh, so just as a uh, predictive matter, uh, I think it's unlikely that the courts will get involved in blocking these actions. Um, I think since the um, – uh, really back to the founding, but at least since um, the 1930s, courts have been incredibly deferential um, in, the, uh, in the foreign affairs uh, area, and I think that would extend, uh, that would extend to trade. But with respect to the should question, I think that there is a pretty good argument that uh, a lot of the powers that the um, Congress has delegated to the president really butt up against the constitutional limits on what Congress uh, can delegate. Again, authority over tariffs, authority over foreign commerce, um, authority over uh, originating bills of revenue, as you mentioned earlier, these are um, not shared powers. These are powers that, th that the framers allocated in the Constitution to Congress uh, exclusively. Um, and Congress has, um, to a very large extent, uh, I think, abdicated the field um, by giving the president such expansive authorities um, in Section 232 um, and various other um, other statutes that are allowing the president to be very aggressive um, in setting uh, in setting trade policy that the uh, that the Congress may not agree with and that the the nation as a whole may not agree with and I think um, as as we start to think about um, reviving uh, the non delegation doctrine in other contexts, I do think that some of these these constitutional uh, challenges can be brought in the trade uh, in the trade context, particularly to Section 232. Um, and we might start to see some some courts uh, being receptive to the idea that, um, look, these are statutory uh, delegations over economic policy that we can review as we can review any um, economic uh, policy. The fact that these are foreign affairs cases doesn't uh, make them different 
um, from other kinds of, uh, of economic policy. And in that sense, we may um, be seeing um, both the courts and our constitutional discourse more generally start to return to really, I think, where we were in the 19th century, century where we thought of uh, trade policy and trade law as being a function of um, domestic economic policy and being about the kinds of distributive concerns um, that are uh, that are really at the core of domestic economic arguments, more so than being about um, being about foreign affairs. You can't untangle um, international trade from foreign affairs, but it's important, I think, um, as a political matter uh, and as a constitutional matter, that those distributive considerations be present uh, in um, formulating uh, formulating trade policy. And to the extent that Congress has uh, delegated wholesale its authorities over setting tariffs to the president, um, then I think there is an, ap an appropriate role for the courts to play um, in saying um, these statutes, particularly Section 232, uh, go too far. Many thanks for that. Steve, last word to you. Uh, same question. Uh, will and should the courts block President Trump's protectionist policies as a violation of the laws of the Constitution? Well, I think they thought they should. I don't. I don't think they will. You know what? What Tim just said. I would. I would flip around uh, a bit. Section two thirty two, the metal and aluminum tariffs, are all about distributive considerations. Uh, even though ostensibly it's supposed to be about national security, uh, what's motivating it is trying to 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 help the steel industry or aluminum or or other special interests, and the national security aspect of Section 232 is that we're infuriating all the other countries around the world who uh, are our allies um, by taking unprincipled, unpredictable actions that violate World Trade Organization uh, rules. So it's, it's, a, it's a really, it's, 232 has opened up all sorts of new problems for uh, the United States. I agree with, with, with Tim that it, it really is time to to look again at, at non-delegation doctrine. It's interesting that the the doctrine, uh, two of the two two of the of the key cases, historical cases in this, were trade cases. Uh, Field v. Clark in 1892 up, upheld a delegation to the president to uh, suspend duty-free treatment, uh, and uh, J.W. Hampton v. United States in 1928 upheld a delegation to the president to make adjustments. Uh, in tariffs, uh, on the grounds that there was an intelligible principle in the in the Tariff Act of, of 19, in the Tariff Act, uh, I guess it was probably 1922 that was being reviewed in that case. But the the, the delegations at that time were, uh, were were much more much narrower, uh, and 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 the second one was a sort of a mathematical one, than uh, the delegations that are done today in Section 232 or Section 301. So uh, in the past, we've had presidents that, that didn't try to push the envelope in starting trade wars. But if we're at the point now where presidents are really going to use all those authorities in an aggressive way to, uh, to try to impose their will on other countries and to make uh, basic changes in the U.S. economy, then I think it is time for the Congress uh, to uh, revisit Section 232 and for the courts to look to look closely at whether there's too much delegation of the president, despite the Supreme Court in a lightly reasoned decision in 1976 stating that, that uh, Section uh, 232 was sufficient to meet any delegation doctrine attack. 
Thank you so much, Timothy Meyer and Steve Charnovitz, for a truly illuminating, educational, and incredibly useful tutorial on the history and constitutional legal dimensions of tariff and trade policy. Timothy, Steve, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Ugana Etze. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for Select America's town hall programs. What a wonderful way to get your continuing legal education credits if you're a lawyer and need them. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. A private nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. To achieve that inspiring mission, we rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people around the country like you, who are lifelong learners committed to the duty of self-education. Thank you for accepting that responsibility, and thank you for becoming engaged in the Constitution Center and helping us help others educate themselves. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.